grab a Bible and get comfortable and open to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. The message this morning is entitled, Two Reasons Why Jesus Came. And John, the apostle of love, gives two weighty and theological reasons why he came. So to set the context, let's read chapter 4, verses 7 to 12, and then we're going to hone in on verses 9 and 10. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. The word of the Lord reads, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son to the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So the message today is from the pen of John's epistle, otherwise known as the Johannine epistles, the first of the Johannine epistles. This first epistle has a very specific theme, and that's the fundamentals of the faith. It's basically a series of tests. Tests to find out whether or not one is a true believer or a phony believer. And just like today, there were many false converts in the first century church who were being influenced by false theology and antichrists. So John is writing to his audience in this letter to correct wrong thinking about Jesus. He is also sharply warning his readers that the outworking of true faith in Christ should be evident in your living. Now, another thing to recognize is that his writings, John's writings, is very consistent with Paul's writings, but the difference is that John's writings, you see an, an interweaving of doctrinal truth and practical truth, instead where Paul focuses on doctrine first, then practical Christian living, and John's writing, it's interwoven. So today we're going to tackle a key area of theology that's particularly relevant to the Christmas season. Among many other things, John has revealed to us in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 4 why Jesus came to earth. He gives two very theological and weighty reasons why Jesus was born in a barn at a particular location, in a particular time, with a very particular set of parents. Now we remember at Christmas time, as we just did a couple days ago, the beauty and simplicity of the stable. We recognize the historicity of the first coming of Christ. The genesis of something amazing, right? His miraculous virgin birth. But what we tend to do at Christmas time 
is we tend to lose sight of the big picture and we we kind of get a tunnel vision when it comes to Jesus at Christmas time. We we focus on what happened and we forget about why it happened. We focus on the manger and we forget about the mission of Jesus. The mission of Jesus wasn't simply to be born, right? The mission of Jesus, as we'll see in a second here, was much more profound. So though though Christmas is over and we just discussed getting together and taking on all the decor, for some of you that's probably a sad thing, but Christmas Day is over, Christmas season is coming to an end, but that doesn't mean that we just forget about the Incarnation, does it? Furthermore, now that we've taken time to remember the historicity of Jesus' coming, an event that brought light into a dark world, this morning we're going to focus on what happens after that. Why did Christ come? You know, the Bible puts it in many different ways. Christ came to give light to the world. Christ came to save sinners. Christ came to abolish death. And those things. But, as an equipper of souls, I want to equip you to be able to answer this question very distinctly from the Word of God. If someone were to ask you, why did Jesus come? I want you to be able to point to 1 John chapter 4 and tell them why. The first reason why Jesus came was to give life to sinners. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, it says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Now notice right off the bat, John says that God, God sent His Son. God sent His Son. Now the corresponding noun to that verb sent is apostolos. We get the word apostle. And the word simply means to to be one sent on a mission with a specific purpose as representative of another. Jesus was sent on a mission with a very specific purpose. And he knew what his mission was very early in life. And might I just add, we also know what our mission is, don't we? We are also on a mission which is why we have a mission statement. But that every local church, or most local churches, they have their mission statement, but the universal church has a mission statement too, right? Everybody knows that one. It's very common, the Great Commission. Go make disciples. But the, but the thing is that people get confused about how we use the term missionary. I don't like to use the term missionary... To, to, to refer to an average Christian. Because it, it kind of blurs the lines between everybody's responsibility to make disciples and the ordained minister of the gospel who was trained and sent out by a local church to a particular region to do something specific. I have a friend who was trained in linguistics at the PhD level then went to seminary, 
then was sent out to a remote African village to create an alphabet so that the people in that village can read the Bible. That's a missionary. So don't get that man confused with the average Christian who's commanded by Christ to make disciples. A missionary is somebody who was sent with a specific mission to a specific place as a representative of another. That's Jesus. Jesus was, quote-unquote, the first missionary. Because he was sent by the Father with a specific purpose to do something on behalf of him. But then, John adds a very key qualifier to God's Son. He is the only begotten Son. Now, this is a very interesting word in the Bible. It occurs nine times in the New Testament, and John uses it five out of nine times. It's a compound word in the Greek, mono, meaning only, and genes, meaning class or kind. So, this word that you've heard before, especially if you've been to churches that use the King James Version, or even the NES Version, the only begotten, it comes from this Greek word that means unique, one and only kind or class. I'm going to unpack this a little bit. The ESV translates this as his only son. The NIV and Holman translates it as his one and only son. And the NAS, KJV, and UKJV says his only begotten son. Now this phrase, it's been problematic. It causes problems because false teachers have, have latched onto this phrase to try to prove their false teaching that Jesus isn't God. That Jesus isn't equal in essence to God as the second person of the Trinity. They see the word begotten and say that Jesus is a created being. Because only someone who has a beginning in time can be begotten. Just like you and I. We were begotten. Right? We were born we didn't always exist. But if you say that Jesus didn't always exist, then you have a problem. But a simple word study of this word, monogenes, joined with some honest study, and guarded by a little bit of Christian orthodoxy, a.k.a. systematic theology, it does not lead us to believe that John intended us to interpret John 3.16 and 1 John Four and nine as such. John and the other writers uses this word monogenes to describe the relation of Jesus to God the Father. The word is descriptive of the kind of sonship he has. Jesus has never called the son of ch the child of a child of God as we are, because our relationship to the Father is not like His. We are adopted. Children, We were estranged children who have become adopted through faith. Which means only Jesus is monogenes. The Bible does not refer to believers as monogenes. Only Jesus. Because only Jesus is the exact, rep exact representation of God. The icon of God. Colossians 1. And therefore, since He is the one and only unique kind or class. He is of the divine nature as it relates to God. That's why the scripture refers to Jesus as the monogenes son. 
He is in a class, to put it another way, all by himself. Whereas we're in a class altogether. Jesus is the one of a kind, unique, special nature of God. And that's absolutely essential to understand. We'll continue to see why as we continue on with John saying here. So God sent his one and only unique kind of a son on a mission into the world. He continues on. Into the world. That can be used in a different number of ways, depending on the context. This, this world, world, that's the Greek word cosmos. I'm sure you've heard that before. World, depending on the context, it could refer to adornment, like the type of clothes you wear. First Peter 3 says your adornment must not only be external, referring to uh, women's attire. This word cosmos could refer to the created earth. It could refer to the evil, sinful, corrupt system. For example, John says, do not love the world. And the world, this word world can be used in a general sense. It can be used as a rhetorical expression to refer to the great majority of people at a particular place. Not intending to encapsulate every single individual. And that's the sense it's used here. In a general sense. It's the equivalent of, uh, of the way that we use public. Right? When, we, when we talk about public opinion, we don't necessarily mean every single person that exists. Right? We're talking about the general public view. We don't mean every single person on the face of the planet. And that's what, and, and that's what oftentimes when the, world, when the word world is used in the context of salvation... That's, that's the way it's intended to be taken, generally. Right? Because if you say that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, or that God, God, Jesus died, died for the sins of the whole world, well, it can't mean every single person who existed, because then you have people in hell who Jesus died for. And, and I hope you're not willing to say that. So, God, the Father, sent the monogenes son into the world on a specific mission to do what? Well, now we get the first reason here. He says, so that we might live through him. Why did God send Jesus Christ into the world? So that we could live. Number one. Now, what does that imply about us apart from Christ? If God sent Jesus into the world so we could live, what does that imply? Without him, spiritually we're dead. Utterly and completely without life in our natural condition. And therefore, the natural man does nothing but sin and cares nothing else but sin. That's all he cares about. He is dead to righteousness, dead to holiness, dead to obedience, dead to faith. And on the contrary, he is alive to sin. He's alive to rebellion. He's alive to idolatry and alive to unbelief. One preacher says that we weren't just in the doghouse with God, we were really in the morgue. And that this, this idea is best illustrated when we consider the Pharisees, right? They seemed religious as they made every effort to maintain every jot and tittle of the law and the rabbinic tradition. They wore their fancy garb and they spoke the language. They even seemed pious. But what was the problem? 
Well, Jesus put it this way in Matthew 23, verse 27. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, and inside are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. That is a perfect illustration of the natural man's condition. A walking tomb. John Piper said it this way, comment on this verse. We need a Savior, not just to cap off our good deeds, not to just forgive us of our sins. We need a Savior because we are spiritually dead and helpless without Him, no matter how good we look on the outside. It's, it's imperative to understand this. And I'll, you'll see why later in the message. God, so John's writing here, as I said before in my introduction, it, it's very consistent with Paul in his letter to the Colossians, Ephesians, and Romans. I'm not going to do a whole survey of those two letters, but you know this first well. I've, I've alluded to it before many times in Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Colossians 2.13, I explained that when I exposited the Colossians. When you were dead in your transgressions and uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with Christ. And in Romans 8, Paul wrote, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the spirit... But any, but, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. So, we understand this. We read these passages. We see how crystal clear this doctrine is in Scripture. And I hope you ask the question, if, if that's true, if what this guy is saying about your spiritual nature is true, then I hope you ask, how can a dead man live? How can our neighbors live? Our lost neighbors, even the people that are really nice and kind to us, even the people that go out of their way to help us, they don't have Christ, they're dead. How can they live? Well, the text tells us, through Him. The only way to have spiritual life, the only way for anyone to have spiritual life is through Him. So Jesus was sent to impart spiritual eternal life to those whom he was sent to. And here, here's why that's, that's, this is vital to understand. When you understand that you were born into the world completely dead in sin, completely, not able to do anything, including being able to choose to follow Jesus, being absolutely unaware and, and content in spiritual darkness and deadness, when you get that, when that clicks in your mind, Jesus is more to you than a humble servant. Jesus is much more to you than a loving friend. He's much more to you than a miracle worker, an ethical and moral teacher. People that don't understand the depravity and nature of man, that's all Jesus is. It's just a tack to be added on. But when you understand that He is your only source and sustenance of life itself, Jesus is a Savior. 
That's what we mean when we say that Jesus is the Savior. He saved you from death. The death that you were hopelessly steeped in. So the more keenly you feel that, the more keenly you will feel your need for a Savior, and the more you feel your need for Him, the more precious He is to you. People that don't see Jesus as the Savior, and that being the most precious thing in the planet, they don't understand it. They don't understand how hopeless and lost and sinful we are without Him. But when you understand what we were without life, Jesus is so much more. Amen? So Jesus came in the flesh to give us eternal life. But you know, something else had to happen in order for that to occur. Which leads us to the second reason why Jesus came. Jesus came to provide a sacrifice for sinners. Jesus came to provide a sacrifice for sinners. In verse 10, In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, the, John talks about love twice, back to back, in these little phrases. That's why he's called the Apostle of Love. He talks about the love of God more than anybody. But notice, notice the, this, the continued theme of this theology here. He emphasizes the fact that man is natural condition does not love God, nor his son whom he sent. In other words, the origin of love lies beyond human effort and initiative. Look at the text. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. One commentator says that left to ourselves, we would not love Him. We would hate Him and oppose Him. It took His boundless sacrificial love to break our hearts of stone and bring us to Himself. Listen. God found us. We didn't find Him. God found us. We didn't find Him. The culture gets it backwards, doesn't it? How many times have you heard that? Oh, when did you find God? Oh, I haven't found God yet. I'm still on my journey. No. We are the ones that are lost, not Jesus. Say that with some passion. We are the ones that were lost, not Jesus. We needed to be found. We were lost, not God. And the background, you know, the reason why I love hymns so much is because the background of most of the historic hymns have this theology in mind. We just sung it this morning, and I didn't even ask Daniel to sing. It's funny how that happens so much. I, I, I have a hymn that I want to talk about in my sermon, and we sing it. That's, that's total providence. And since this, this hymn has been a hymn of the month, um, you, you probably know the background, but if you don't, um, the hymn that best illustrates this truth is Amazing Grace. The hymn writer, John Newton, he was the captain of a slave ship. And one day he found himself out in the middle of the sea in a storm, and he saw his life flash before his eyes, and, he, and something happened. He called out to God in repentance and faith, and he was saved. 
And then he wrote these words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And then he says, I once was a lost, and now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. You see, so I can't help but wonder if John Newton had read this as he was penning this, this, this one of the most popular hymns on the planet. Not that we loved God, but he loved us. His new, John Newton's words, words reveal that he knew that he was the one who needed to be found, like a ship lost at sea. Like a ship lost at sea, we're all born lost in needing God to find us. And that's what he did. Why did he do this? Why would God do such a thing? Now this is the question that we need to ask more often. Instead of asking God, why did you let this bad thing happen? God, why did you stoop to human level and save sinners who deserve nothing but judgment? That's the question we need to ask more often. The latter question reveals that you have a high view of God. The former question reveals you have a high view of man, right? So why, why, I mean, this is why it's amazing grace. God, why would you send your son, your one and only unique kind of a son, on a mission to this planet full of dead sinners who didn't love you, who hated you, He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that, that's not a word you see written on very many t-shirts these days, do you? That, that's not a popular word. That, that is not a hip word. But it's in the Bible. So I'm happy to explain it to you. But before I do, notice that, that this word propitiation, it's used within the context of love. Now that's heavy. This weighty theological term that most people don't use, it's used in the context of love. He defines the love of Jesus by propitiation and propitiation by love. That's amazing. So what does this word mean here? Well, the word is used also in 1 John 2, 2. And here's what it means, okay? If you'd like to take notes, write this down. Propitiation is the act of turning aside the wrath of the offended God. Propitiation is the act of turning aside the wrath of the offended God by means of appropriate sacrifice. Now, by giving Jesus as the vicarious sacrifice... God was able to do three things, okay? He was able to remain true to his holy nature, which cannot overlook sin. Okay, difference between the gospel and the Muslim gospel. The Muslim gospel says, if I do enough good, maybe Allah will forgive me. We say, no, that can't be true, because a just and holy God cannot overlook the sin. Second, God was able to uphold the law which stipulates that sin must be punished by death. Sin must be punished by death. 
And thirdly, God was able to mercifully acquit sinners who were deserving of the death. That's why that propitiation was necessary. In other words, he came into the world, Jesus, in order to offer himself to God so that the wrath of God could be placed on him. So you see why I preach. You cannot talk about the love of God without the wrath of God. Now, I don't want to always preach about the wrath of God because that could be depressing and you'll feel like you're getting battered. But it's equally as evil and wrong for the preacher just to stand up here and talk about how much God loves you. Because you cannot understand the depth of the love of God without understanding the wrath of God. You can't understand the love of God without understanding the propitiation with which Christ provided. Does that make sense? So in, so in application, when Christ died, he appeased. He satisfied the demands of God's justice. And that's love. That's love. Can you think of a more loving thing that could be done for you? than for someone to satisfy the wrath of God for you. That's love. When we say that Jesus loves you, that's how we know. That's what he did to show us he loved us. He took the full wrath of God as a sacrifice for our sin. So his, his, th- this is important because God's justice demands that sin be dealt with. Okay? We all think that way. Except when it pertains to us, right? We, we all think that when there's a heinous crime committed in our community, we demand that the criminal be arrested and pay the crime. Pay, for the, pay the piper, right? I mean, doesn't, doesn't it make you angry when you hear on the news uh, a, a woman being, you know, raped and murdered and babies being killed and all this stuff and, and you, you find... You find Needles at the playground. I mean, it just, it just makes you angry. It makes, it makes you like want somebody to pay for what they're doing, right? That, that, is a, that is a natural feeling because we're made in the image of God. So we have to understand that as we, as we have that natural uh, sense of morality that, 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 that tells us that criminals should be punished, we have to understand and keep in mind so we don't become puffed up that... Before God, we're all criminals, right? Just as criminals must face the court system here, or they should, we want them to, we also must face God's justice. Which, by the way, is different than man's justice. When we see that God is perfect, therefore, in order for us to be in His presence, we must achieve perfection. But there's a problem. We understand that God is holy and pure, but knowing that we also must be holy and pure to be in His presence, we understand there's a problem. We understand that God is altogether righteous. But the Bible says that no one is righteous. You see, so we we have no problem in our evangelical churches to, to rattle off these attributes of God, right? But again, the implications of these attributes of God have, 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 have a role in our life. Right? We understand that God is perfect, 
that tells us, well, then we need to be perfect in order to be in his presence. So we need that perfect sacrifice. The Bible teaches that God is infinite, limitless. So therefore, one sin against an infinite being demands an infinite punishment. I mean, when I got that, that, that really helped me. Because, I mean, one of the common, it's a good question. One of the common questions is, you know, in our, in our life, right, when, when somebody steals a candy bar, especially a child, I mean, the worst that's probably going to happen to them is that, you know, they'll get their hand slapped, right? They'll, if, if the cop is gracious, he'll, he'll take Johnny by the hand and say, your kid stole this, now you can deal with it, or I can take him to jail, you know? Whatever. So, 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 so we, we understand that the punishment should fit the crime, right? A murderer is not going to have the same punishment as a thief, Praise the Lord for that, right? So we take that standard of justice and we apply it to God's. But it doesn't work. Our human standard of justice is not like God's. One sin against an infinite being demands an infinite punishment. James 2. If you broke one, to break one law is to break them all, Right? So that is why, if, if, you, if anybody asks you, if you wanted this yourself, why does one teeny-weeny little sin send someone to hell for eternity? It's because an, a sin against an infinite being demands an infinite punishment. And it took an infinite sacrifice to give us infinite salvation. It took an infinite sacrifice to appease the wrath of an infinite God. So at the cross, Jesus bore the wrath so that we don't have to. This is why we need a Savior. So understand this very clearly. This propitiation it means to turn away the wrath of God. Put in other words, by means of an appropriate sacrifice. Jesus came to do that. Came to do that. It's very important to understand. Now, this idea of propitiation was nothing new. To us, we perhaps understand it at a basic level. But if you were one of John's Jewish readers, you would have known exactly what John was talking about and why he was talking about it. In the Old Testament, that was the purpose of animal sacrifice. It was to appease the wrath of God on behalf of Jews under the Old Covenant. If you go back to Exodus 25... You go back and read about how Yahweh commanded them to construct an ark. And on top of that ark was the, called the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the lid or cover of the ark. And it was intended to function as the dividing line between God's presence and his law that was placed inside the ark of the covenant. Then the priest would take the blood of slaughtered animals and sprinkle the blood on top of the mercy seat. Now, if you were a Jew living under the Old Covenant, if you were a faithful Jew, this is how your sins were symbolically atoned for. It was only through the offering of blood that the condemnation of the law and God's wrath could be taken away. 
So the violations were covered. But these sacrifices did not appease the wrath of God once and for all, right? Which is why there had to be a perpetual obligation. This is a symbolic act. It was a picture of Christ's propitiatory sacrifice. Now here's what's interesting about this word. This understanding of the Old Testament mercy seat. The New Testament word for propitiation, hilasmas, carries the exact connotation and meaning as mercy seat. Hebrews 9, verse 5, And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. In the Greek, it is halosmos. It is the word propitiatory, propitiation. So we see here that this word halosmos could be translated propitiation or mercy seat. It's the same. Hebrews 2, 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So just as it was necessary for the blood of animals to be sprinkled on top of the mercy seat to appease the wrath of Yahweh, it was likely, likewise, excuse me, necessary for Jesus, sweet little helpless baby Jesus born in the manger, to be born under the law, to obey every law perfectly, so that we could have a righteousness to offer God in exchange for our sin, in order that he would serve as the Lamb of God who would shed his blood to be the propitiation that we need. Jesus was the mercy seat. And at that mercy seat was where our atonement occurred and where the wrath of God was fully placed on him instead of us. That's why, when you understand that, that is what makes me the most thankful for Jesus. That's what makes me say, what a Savior. That God would do this. That God would send his one and only unique kind of a son into a world that hates him. And to make his son, who is innocent, suffer the wrath on behalf of those who want nothing to do with him. That's amazing grace. When you sing amazing grace, that's what should go through your mind. Amen? So I could go on and on about this. As you could tell, it gets me a little excited. But I want you to see from the Bible. I mean, I want us, we are called a Bible church. So as much as, as, as I am convinced that you need your systematic theology, and as much as I'm convinced you need to esteem the reformers, and you need to esteem the church fathers, and you need to know your church history, we are primarily a Bible church. So I want you to understand that from the Word of God, you can clearly and easily understand and defend why you are a Christian. You are a Christian because you know that this man, Jesus, came to give life to sinners who were dead in sin. You are also a Christian because you understand that Jesus came to provide propitiation for your sin.
that he came to turn away and to absorb the wrath of God on himself. Took that which we rightly deserve. So at the very best, right, the world, the world knows the Christmas story. The world can sing Silent Night by Heart. The world can, can, can give you a play-by-play of the, the nativity story. And they might even admit that it actually happened. But very few, including churchgoers, very few know why he came. Very few will say that he came to give life to me when I was dead in my sin. Very few know and understand that he came to be the propitiation for my sin. Which leads me to the implication, right? If you don't understand what really the love of God means, you don't understand that he was the sacrifice, he was the vicarious substitutionary sacrifice. If that does not click in your mind, then the wrath of God still abides on you, the Bible says. This is why this is urgent. The one who does not believe in Jesus does not have eternal life, and the one who does not believe in Jesus Jesus himself said the wrath of God abides on him. So my prayer for all of us this morning is to remember that Jesus, he came 2,000 years ago and he was born and fulfilled the prophecy. But we can't end it there. This Christmas season that draws down to an end, meditate on why he came. Keep the big picture in mind amidst everything going around you. And if you do that, if you meditate on Christ giving life to dead sinners and Christ producing a sacrifice by which he absorbed the wrath of God, you meditate on that and your heart for Christ and his gospel will not grow cold or indifferent. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you've given us this truth to feast on. Thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ came to give life to sinners. Thank you that Jesus Christ came to absorb the wrath of God, something that we can't even begin to comprehend. Oh, Father, help us to love this truth. Help us to be zealous for the truth and help us to have the courage and and motivation to share this truth with others, to encourage one another with this truth to remind ourselves in times of sickness and sorrow and hopelessness that we still have reason to rejoice and to be thankful because we have life, Lord. We have life because Jesus gave us life. We love you in his name we pray. Amen.